Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists, the podcast that tells you everything you need to know about working for yourself. I'm Lily Cantor, a freelance money, health and lifestyle journalist. And I'm Emma Wilkinson, a freelance journalist specialising in health and medicine. So this week, the topic of the podcast is disability. Yeah, so we actually had a number of you get in touch and ask us to do an episode on disability or ask us questions um, about working as a freelance with a disability and the unique challenges uh, that may present. Yeah, so we agreed that this was something we needed to cover as soon as possible. Um, It's not something that MRI have experience on, so we're very fortunate to have two guests this week who can help guide us through the episode. Yeah, so we're not going to do our usual start of giving our top tips. Um, We're going to get straight into introducing our guests and let them share their knowledge and wisdom on this topic. So today we have Lydia Wilkins. Hello, Lydia. How are you doing? Hi, good, thank you. Lydia is an NCTJ qualified freelance journalist. Her work has appeared in The Independent, Reader's Digest, Refinery29, The Metro and more. She also has a newsletter and is a blogger at Mademoiselle, I can never say that, mademoisellewomen.com. Lydia is on the autistic spectrum. She was diagnosed in 2015. However, this has proven to be an asset. By the age of 18, she'd interview people such as Sir Harold Evans. If you don't know who he is, you should do, but he was um, Sunday Times campaigning editor. And also Anastasia, who you also should know for her song, I'm Out of Love. I certainly remember that one, yeah. my age. Um, and in her spare time, she can be found learning Dutch and cuddling her elderly cat. Uh, and we also have with us Gemma Stevenson. Hi, Gemma. Hi, yeah, how are you? <laughs> Good, thank you. Uh, she is a freelance sports journalist and broadcaster reporting on disability sport for Sky Sports, providing commentary on the wheelchair tennis tour for the disability sports channel and presenting the constant cheerleader podcast um, her career so far has seen her establish herself as a leading voice in parasport reporting creating content at some of the biggest events on the disability sports calendar which also in a pre-pandemic time would have included the tokyo 2020 paralympics um, this summer um, Gemma was born with ella's danlos syndrome and um, we'll now call it eds from now on Yep. <laughs> uh, later diagnosed with traumatic brain injury and dystonia after a car accident in 2016. Gemma's always championed and campaigned for improving representation of disability and disabled athletes within mainstream media. Um, away from the newsroom, she represented the country as an athlete on the Team England Adaptive Abilities Cheerleading Squad. That sounds very exciting. I'm going to have to ask you about that in a bit. <laughs> Yeah, wow, both of you have got really impressive CVs. I'm starting <laughs> to get imposter syndrome now. Um, but Lydia, let's start with you. Um, is there something that's helped you succeed in freelance journalism, perhaps something you'd wish you'd known before you started? Um, the one thing I wish I'd known before I'd started is rejection is not the be-all and end-all. So by that, I mean, if you're pitching a piece, for instance, and somebody comes back to you and says, this isn't for us, um, you don't necessarily have to, you don't have to like be like, oh, this idea is really rubbish. Um, you can write back to the editor and you can say, okay, I understand what you're saying. How about I, there's this different angle that you can put on it and there's this different time 
peg sort of thing. Rejection is not the be all and end all, and it's not a marker of your value as a freelancer. I wish somebody had told me that, to be honest. Yes, you're so right. And so much, there are so many factors outside our control with regarding timing and budgets and just the whims of that particular commissioning editor you could have the best pitch in the world and there are other factors kind of at play and whether that gets picked up or not yeah I wish somebody had told me to be honest (laughs) it's good advice and what about you Gemma what's your top tip I think freelancing for me um it's helped me establish my voice and what I want to do so I was working in a contract um before I went freelance um And often in contract, I was finding that I was having to be um, my editor's voice. And when I was doing a story on disability, having a non-disabled editor tell me what voice I should be writing disability on wasn't um, probably the best thing and and does have historical connotations of a non-disabled person telling a disabled person how to represent things. And what's um, been great about freelancing is the freedom because I go to editors now, I pitch the story, I pitch how I want it to be done and what line we go with. And they now employ me based on that pitch. So I know that my voice isn't gonna be compromised as a freelancer anymore. Um, and, and what's great, like one of the places I work for um, is obviously Sky and what's great is there's full trust there that I know what I'm talking about. I'm knowledgeable in the sports that I cover. And um, there is absolutely no interference um, apart from like, obviously, I'm, I'm not if I get them into a legal trouble, which I never have done. <laughs> but, um, but if I was to if what I wrote was going to get them in legal trouble, then obviously they would say something. But there's just full on trust there that I know what I'm talking about. And I know the right way to represent uh, my community, really. Yeah. And it's about having that authenticity isn't it that like you say you you kind of you know what you're talking about and it's not coming from someone who doesn't definitely and Lydia I wonder with you I mean you've talked about being on the autistic spectrum but also how that's helped you and be very beneficial to um, your work as freelance journalist I mean can you expand on that a bit and talk about some of the benefits it's brought you um so when I was diagnosed, it was kind of, it's interesting to see people's attitudes just in terms of how we perceive autism slash Asperger's syndrome culturally. As soon as I said it, it was, there was two categories of people. There was either the person who was like, oh, okay, that makes no difference to you. You're just a freelancer. That's literally just, it's the least interesting thing about me, really. And then there's the other category of people who seemingly take offense because they're like, oh, you're not Rain Man? Oh my God, autism is so scary. I'm just going to run away. And I was very aware of this. And as I started to do my NCTJ training and eventually become a freelancer I remember sort of sitting to myself and thinking okay I'm aware that there are significant challenges to me that somebody who's not on the spectrum has so I can be hypersensitive to noise I find it really difficult to filter noisy environments and it can be really quite distressing non-verbal communication as well that's kind of my kryptonite really um but I remember thinking I sat down and was like, okay, I can't really see 
social convention. So if there was like, um, what's the word? Um, if there was a protocol, for instance, like, you know, when like you go and see the queen and it's like the receiving line, <laughs> unless it's made obvious to me, I can't see it. And I have to learn as I go throughout life that this is what we do, what's appropriate and what's not. However, I remember thinking, okay, so I see that's difficult to me. However, that can mean that I can go and get people who are hard to get at. So when you were reading out my bio, it <laughs> we were discussing before this podcast how I got to interview Harold Evans. I was a month shy of turning 19. That's not something teenagers should be doing. Um, but that was literally because I had sort of said, okay, he was an editor and he's known as a campaigner and he's done such and such and he's achieved all these amazing things. But he's just a person. So what? If he's had all these achievements, he's interesting, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't be able to go and not talk to him. And that that's an asset, I think, because it allows me to go and get stories that you may not necessarily that you may not necessarily have had. So uh, the same year, so I turned 19 in August, 2018, I interviewed Alan Rusbridger, which was completely terrifying. Um, <laughs> and it was the first sort of interview I'd done face to face, never met him before. And I'd sort of grown up with the Guardian thinking, you know, I've read this, maybe I could be the same as that. I could be a journalist, <laughs> um, but nobody who, was 19 at the time had I think it was 1,500 words in the NUJ's the journalist and they didn't have like the photographer um it's literally just a way of changing the story so people always say oh you, this is such an issue and you've got to learn to overcome it why do I have to overcome something couldn't I just change the story like it's yeah you're kind of taking your own unique approach and actually um it kind of feels like you're used to um kind of working out how to overcome challenges or problems because there are things that you've come across that you know i for example might not have noticed being a challenge around kind of social conventions or that kind of thing um so you've just kind of approached all those other things that might feel far too daunting to anyone in the same way yeah, it's, the thing about that is, um, <laughs> I don't, it's not exact, people sometimes say autism is a superpower, I disagree with this, because there are challenges that I have, that I have to deal with, so I carry earplugs with me, so if I'm in an, if I'm in an environment like a supermarket, and something happens, so the other day I was in my local Sainsbury's, the fire alarm went off and, you know, with the, all the masks and everything, nobody said what was going on and it was so loud and it kept going and all these people were just shouting and, but I carry earplugs because that's really distressing. Um, for me, it's, <laughs> I wouldn't say, it's not exactly, if I say special, this line of thinking, it's sort of, this is just me, it's sort of very matter of fact. If that makes sense. I'm not sure if that answers the question. Yeah, no, it does. Because I think, I mean, one thing, I don't know, did you go straight into freelancing, Lydia? Did you have a staff job? 
Or did you just think that freelancing would offer you um, kind of perhaps more freedom or flexibility of choice over how you wanted to work and the environment you wanted to work in? Um, I worked for Byline Media, but I'm not sure if that counts as a staff job um, because it was crowdfunded. So you didn't no. have, I'm not sure if that's freelance or. <laughs> so the sort of, if I say I've been pretty much freelance, so since I left and graduated from my nctj um but that's a whole other story <laughs> and do you find that suits you do you think can you imagine that that's um kind of I, i've spoken to other freelancers who perhaps for chronic illness or other reasons have kind of opted for a freelance um career because it just gives them more freedom over you know when they work how they work um Truth be told, I'm still sort of thinking about how I would answer that question, only because I always wanted to be a reporter for The Guardian. Um, and I've been to their offices a few times, and it's probably one of the best newsrooms I've been in because it, it's actually accommodating, whereas other papers I've been to, I'm not going to name them because, you know, libel, <laughs> um, they've compared to the guardian there's always been like really noisy it's really hectic and no one tells you what to do and there's all these different like textures and it's just sort of it's a sensory mess i always wanted to be a reporter and truth be told since i've done my training i always think i would be better as a features writer simply because autism is sometimes described as being developmentally delayed so it takes me longer to do tasks sometimes and churning up news and being quick and on a deadline can sometimes that's a bit i can't do that because it's literally my like my brain won't go fast enough and typing and keeping keeping account of the requirements of keeping an eye on libeling someone <laughs> you can't do that and having like the different paths and all that sort of thing that I would have loved to have been a reporter for The Guardian and or features writer. That's very unlikely, I would say, simply because newspapers are not exactly accommodating in terms of disability. Yeah, yeah. That, that, that's, that's really interesting. And I just wanted to um, bring Gemma in there because I just wondered if you'd found that you've had any barriers um, to getting work or on the way in which you you've been treated I mean you mentioned that you had sort of when you were employed but yeah. as a freelance have you experienced that at all um, no because I mean that's one of the reasons why I left my contract job um, I won't say where it was but I did suffer a lot of discrimination so I have um, a condition called hemidystonia which means I'm basically I have very painful spasms on my right hand side and it's something I really um, campaign for and that's for people putting people like me in front of the camera because I don't know whether you've seen it but I notice it as somebody with a more complex disability and somebody who when I'm classified as an athlete I come at quite high uh, you know the most disabled one of the most disabled athletes on any team and um, if you notice the disabled talent that's being put in front of the camera it is very much what I call sexy disabled um, so it's basically if you have a physical disability, so if you have a physical disability and you can hide the disability to make them look 
normal whatever normal is let's not you know let's not get into that <laughs> philosophy but um so that you can't see the disability um then it's it, it appears that it's more pal palatable to do that in broadcasting what i really credit where i freelance for now you know sky disability sports channel um everywhere like that they know that the risk is high that if i'm on camera there will be a spasm um, but they just let me sit in front of that camera and what happens will happen um, because they feel that it's important to have that representation because at the end of the day, like I mentor a lot of up and coming uh, disabled talent uh, in media, um, like when I'm not doing my day job freelancing and what you begin to notice is that a lot of what I, or what I've noticed is a lot of people with um, complex disabilities still don't, feel that the media um, industry is for them. And that's because of that representation of, oh, um, we've got a wheelchair user. If we shoot them from like the shoulders up, nobody sees the wheelchair uh, and they kind of look um, as if they are non-disabled. And I just, um, and the reason why I lost my, I, I left my contract job even um, is because of the discrimination I suffered. There was an automatic opinion by certain people uh, including my manager at the time, that because of the level of my disability, it was safer and it was better and more palatable to keep me locked behind a desk in a job that had no career progression. And I looked in that job and I went, you know what, to get where I want to be, to get what I went into journalism to do, I am going to have to smash a hell of a lot of glass ceilings. And I am starting basically from the basement so whereas a non-disabled person would be starting from say floor one or floor two to get to floor eight I was starting from a basement even below the basement and and that's an awful lot of um, glass ceilings to smash so I thought well I'm going to leave that because actually I could spend 40 years of my career fighting um, this like you know probably not intentional but it was kind of prejudice um or i can go out on my own i can go out and freelance i can do what i do i can take the relationships i have with the athletes from being an athlete myself um and i can go out there because my ultimate dream was you know i'm i'm a really big tennis fan i play wheelchair i, I say play um it's questionable whether i actually play. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some of my shots are a little bit dodgy but i wanted to i my dream was that i wanted to be able to say that when i left my career I'd reported and as in reported, visibly reported from all four Grand Slams and I'd been to a Paralympics. There was no way if I'd stayed in my contract job that that was ever going to happen because I was seen as the really disabled girl that um, basically wouldn't amount to much because basically, I, I always say, you know, if, if I go for an interview for a freelance job, I introduce myself as the journalist who can't write. And you do get a few looks like people go, Sorry, what? Um, are you literally talking yourself out of this job? But basically because of my spasms and because of my hemidystonia, I can't use my right hand. I have no grip in my right hand. So I rely on things like voice activated software and having a support worker to do my job. And it was kind of like, I had a few months out after leaving that contract job because obviously having your, um, what you're capable of perceived by your level of disability can have quite a few mental health effects. Um, um, as well um, so I had a few months out and then I started freelancing and you know within four months of leaving I'd started doing some freelance work for Sky who were really 
like we really want to get broad disability sport into our coverage can you come come on board and do you know what within a month of working for them and having um and and having them have the trust in me and not see the disability see me as Gemma the reporter not Gemma uh, the disabled reporter um I mean my confidence was back up I always say that going freelance saved my career because actually I was quite near leaving um the media because of the way I'd been treated um but actually what it gives me now is I say it gives me a filter so I can go for these jobs and I can talk with these people and I can filter out if I'm going to be in a very helpful environment or whether I'm going to be in a not so helpful environment. And if, if I know it's going to be a not so helpful environment, I'm free to walk away or wheel away in my case, um, but walk away and say, thanks for the offer, but no thanks. Um, and and it, it, it's, it's also a kind of protection of mental health as well. Um, so I, so I went freelance because of facing discrimination in a, in a contract job. Uh, what nobody told me about <laughs> when I went freelance is something called access to work. Um, basically the system, I know, uh, Lydia is laughing because she's probably had to deal with it, but it's the system that's designed by the government to help disabled people um, remain in, in employment. But um, I have had all sorts of trouble. Um, this, the way, it's not actually the policy that's underlined by it. The policies that underline the whole system are actually very good. It's actually the gatekeepers that stop you being able to access it. So they all have their different interpretation of the rules. But I mean, I've been told before that there's, um, when I've rung up to ask for support, for a support worker to travel to Australia for me to cover, you know, the Australian Open, there's been times when we've been waiting for the, to, until the 11th hour for the money because they keep telling me that no disabled person does um is a journalist like me and they've never encountered anybody they like told me. you that yeah um and um, oh my god but, i mean i've been down to the dwp offices because it got so bad we had to make an official complaint but nobody tells you about that stress because when you're under contract your employer tends to do it for you so you don't have to deal with it um i have become an expert in how to how to work access to work as well as a freelance journalist um people actually come to me now on twitter for advice they're like they've come back and said this what do i do um but that's because they know that i've actually been down to the dwp offices and talked about the problems with the system and said look you know the the like i said with the contract job the glass ceilings have to be smashed because there's this feeling with the gatekeepers that disabled people are only capable of doing low level jobs and they're not going to be doing any high powered jobs that involve them traveling or involve them um, doing that so when you come at them with a job that actually i've been told once that's not a normal job for a disabled person <laughs> um, um it's that's often their excuse for not actually doing stuff. Um, they don't get it. They, they don't get any leeway with me because, but it always, whenever I have to fight it, I sit there and go, well, I'm a journalist who has done a bit about disability affairs, who does, you know, disability sport, who knows about the Equality Act. What happens if somebody who didn't know about that um, went forward to them and said, um, you know, this is what I want to do. And they just said, no, and that person accepted it because you're kind of denying career opportunities there if you're doing mm. that. And it's, it's kind of, it's still an ongoing fight. I still have at least one point every year um, where I have to do a fight for the support I need um, to be able to work and earn money. Um, it's been quite nice in lockdown, actually. I've had five months of not having to worry about picking up the phone and saying to access to work. Um, I need about 
two grand for a support worker to travel halfway across the world with me. Um, <laughs> um, it's been quite nice, actually. It's been quite chilled. Um, <laughs> I, I must say that's the one thing I'm not looking forward to going back to work is having to do that conversation. <laughs> and that's interesting that you made the point there that it was something that you, although your staff job sounds awful, the th- there was aspects that you hadn't had to consider because the organisation that you were employed by, it was kind of their responsibility to consider that. Are there any kind of useful resources that you can think of that um, freelancers with a disability can tap into or might find useful? We can kind of put those in our show notes. Um, Um, Is there anything that you can think of that you found helpful? I think going to any, um, any conversation with access to work, knowing your Equality Act. Uh, and knowing what is a reasonable adjustment and knowing that the policy is it's not that it's one size fits all it's what the minimum for you are so I got help towards my day chair through access to work but because I've got such a complex disability my chair isn't something you can pick up off the shelf for 300 pounds my chair is a six and a half grand machine um, that has everything set up so that I can comfortably um, do my work in it as well as go about my day-to-day life. Uh, one of the arguments that came back at me was that it was far above and beyond a basic requirement of a wheelchair user. So I went back and said, your policy says, it's not what is general of a wheelchair user, it's about what fits the individual. So um, my my probably my top tips would be, go in knowing the Equality Act uh, and the legislation surrounding that about reasonable adjustments. Um, go in knowing what's in the advisor's handbook because the advisors actually have a handbook so what you get on the government face is basically an applicant's guide but if you google access to work advisors handbook you also get to see what is what the advisor has in front of them so when they come back at you with some thing you can go oh hang on a minute I've got my your handbook right in front of me on this computer here it is all about you know any disabled person knows if you've had to go through the personal independence payment system if you've had to go through the um, you know ESA system you have to know how the other side's working because they will find it's a sad thing but um, the last 10 years um, of austerity has led to Um, and lots has been written about this in the media, but has led to kind of, in a way, the vilification of disabled people and us being seen as scroungers if we try and ask for help with our um, health, like for stuff that costs money with our health. And that's also then gone into systems that are designed to keep us in work. So you have to go in knowing what the other side, you know, you have to play devil's advocate. Before I do a phone call with access to work actually, my mum sits there and we do the whole conversation. We practice, we rehearse the whole conversation wow. and, and she comes back with the arguments they might use so that when we're in that situation, that would be a brilliant tip. If you've got somebody that you live with or even somebody you can talk via Zoom before you do the phone calls, who can play devil's advocate, you, you then are more prepared for that phone call. Um, it's just, yeah, it, it's, it's, I find it quite ironic that the system that's designed to keep us working also put so many barriers in our way um, to keep to give us that support but once you've done it a couple of times and they know that you know what you're talking about they they very rarely attempt it they do every so often like I say once a year I'll get a little kickback um, but um, 
um, once you've done it a couple of times and you've built up your confidence, you'll be fine. Yeah, um, it's about arming yourself with that that knowledge, isn't it? It just reminds me, sort of, this is a slight offshoot, but um, it's like like when I um, gave birth um, and I was induced and they were telling me I couldn't go in a birthing pool because I was being induced. And I literally whipped out the nice guidelines and said, <laughs> it says in this paragraph, I have a right to any kind of birth and that includes water births and magically yeah. they found some way of monitoring me that they'd never used before that was sat in the cupboard because no one had ever kind of demanded it so yeah that's probably, right. that's probably the best way to think of it imagine when you're talking to access to work you're in a birthing pool and you've got your nice dog <laughs> it's probably a brilliant way to think about it because it is you just you just have to know your stuff. Like yeah. I'm, I'm on Twitter. If anybody is going from access to access to work the first time or is really struggling, literally just get in touch with me via Twitter and I'll try and help where I can. If I'm not like doing a 15 hour day at a sports tournament, <laughs> I will try, you know, they, those happen. I get very little sleep when I'm out reporting. Um, but you know, I'm always, I'm there on Twitter. I'm there on Instagram. Um, I love a bit of social media. <laughs> and it's really, it's really good advice, Gemma, such good tips. And Lydia, could I ask you um, a bit about your newsletter? Cause while we're on the subject of kind of resources and useful kind of bits of information, um, could you um, tell us about your newsletter and kind of why you set that up? Um, well, truth be told, uh, <laughs> at the, Okay, um, I'm not sure if this is being picked up, but there is work going on outside my house, so if I get interrupted, apologies. Um, so, at the start of each year, I always put down in the hours of January the 1st, when it's just those quiet moments and the singing has stopped and the champagne's all drunk, um, I set myself a list of goals that I want to achieve each year, and one of them was to set up a newsletter. This is because it seemed to me that for a while, this is kind of like the new blogging, if you like. If you had 10 years, 10 years ago, it was all about, come and follow my blog, like me on Facebook. Now everyone's got a newsletter. There are brands doing it. There are shops that do it. There are freelancers who do it. There are journalists who do it. But then COVID-19 happened and a wrecking ball was kind of taken to my freelance income. Editors stopped commissioning me. Editors were just something out of jobs. Pieces were getting cancelled. And media has had a tough time with it recently. So I sort of, taking this on board, I first of all wanted to create a product that was... <laughs> it, it sounds like there's a thunderstorm out there. <laughs> It's, um, it's, we were saying about hypersensitivity, it's really difficult for me to focus when there's like noise like this in the background. I'm even wearing headphones for people who are listening, but it's not helping. Um, so the idea was, first of all, that from day one, the newsletter would be profitable. So I have a weekly sponsor and you both have sponsored me previously. Um, but then what I would do is I would have a piece of content and or interview there'd be two resource lists so one would be for freelancers and it would be it would be pitch call outs it would be jobs it'd be resources it'd be webinars that sort of thing the next one would be for autistic people because 
to be blunt about it, we've had a hard time during this pandemic. So prior to coronavirus being a thing, um, we were underemployed despite being able to work. I think the, the National Autistic Society has a statistic and good research about this. But we have had to deal with things like the illegal do not resurrect form. So that's been a story that's been rumbling on the BBC for a while. Um, we've also had to adapt quickly. Personally, I find uncertainty really difficult to deal with. And I'll always be the one who's always like, okay, so today we will be leaving at this time and getting to the train station at this. And then we have five minutes exactly. And then we have the next 10 minutes to get the train. Having to adapt to the rules, changing really quickly is really difficult for someone like me. And I think there's also, there's been stories of when support has been cut back and there isn't like social outreach and people haven't reached food necessarily. And then we have to deal with the whole face mask situation. So technically, if you're on the autistic spectrum, you could be exempt from wearing the mask. I wear mine because it doesn't, it doesn't cause me distress. However, you can't exactly go around and say, oh, that person ha that person isn't wearing a mask. They should be, because we're still exempt, but you can't exactly see if someone's autistic. Mm. It's the thing like it most is, but you don't look like you're on the spectrum. How can you be? You're female. Oh my god, but like you're you're talking to me. Um so and as well as this, so I also have a small target to raise i think it's pronounced coffee or kofi uh, yeah yeah i go through this every week is it coffee or kofi yeah um so that budget i'm raising commissions either an autistic illustrator or an autistic writer so i've had a lady who creates under the title of aspu bun create a comic for me each week um because i wanted to do something to pay someone and I really want to expand this, so to be accommodating, really, because we don't exactly have a space for us. The media, it, in terms of the stories we have, it's often, this is someone who's autistic, they'll never be happy in a relationship, or this is someone who's on the spectrum, who's just done some horrible act, like... The stories I see are often like school shooters or sudden diagnosis with Asperger's syndrome, or it could be like, I don't know, so like horrific crime. There is, there is no in between. There is literally nothing about us, you know, that's vaguely accurate or even vaguely positive about us at all. Um, I'm looking to expand this. So on Friday, in two days time from when this podcast is recording, I'm launching a paid for option. So you have two emails a month, that's more pitch call outs, that's more resources. There's discounts, giveaways, and all sorts of things. Um, there'll be a special offer, um, so you can sign up. And I'm hoping to apply for grants and things. So, so far I've been rejected. Um, I'm hoping to bring somebody on board so I can expand this and start to actually you know employ writers rather than just one illustrator yeah and i think that's sorry Emma. i was gonna say i uh, know i'm just saying it's a really good example of generating your own income as well and i think a lot of people have been doing this mm. um during the pandemic you know freelancers have kind of like you say perhaps lost work 
and been coming up with new ways of um, finding revenue streams and kind of generating that off their own back. Um, yeah, and it sounds like a really good thing that you can expand. I just wanted to ask both of you really, because you've talked about some of the barriers that you've come up against or, or adaptations you've had to make yourself. Um, but I'm just kind of wondering kind of what we, how do we need to be educating commissioning editors? Um, what can they actually do to kind of make work more accessible to people with disabilities? Lydia, um, what do you think? Can you come back to me? Um, this is <laughs> simply because this is a subject I regularly talk about and I need to think about my answer otherwise it will be going on and on and on. <laughs> That's fine. Gemma, how about you then? I think from my point of view, so there's um, a saying in the disabled community called nothing about us without us. Exactly. If you look at the makeup of most, I mean, I know there's been a lot in the media about the makeup of most boards and most, you know, high up positions in companies about the fact that there's not enough BAME representation. However, there is absolutely, I think if you looked at disability representation, it would be zero. Like I've always said that until somebody who looks like me is in the position of the editor, I will not be able to um, do fully what I want to do with my job. Because at the end of the day, I'm pitching stories about the disabled community to a middle-aged white man. And trying to make and trying to make that palatable uh, to a middle-aged white man, and so then what ends up happening, and this is what I'm sure Lydia's seen as well. Like Lydia says, there's a there's a trope with autism and a narrative with autism. There's very much a narrative with uh, physical yeah. disability as well. It's something we call inspiration porn. Mm. Uh, so it's basically making the achievement of a disabled person look better by mentioning their disability first. It's something I will never do. I refuse to do. I have in my career, when an editor has edited it and put that in, I've said, take my name off the byline. Um, because I know as a disabled person how damaging it is. You know, even, you know, the superhumans that was used in London 2012 was great because it got people watching um, the Paralympics. But it now needs to move on because at the end of the day, the narrative around physical disability, uh, I always say, you know, in the media, we are either saints or sinners when in reality we're Tyrion Lannister. Uh, so we have some good bits and we have some bad bits and we're not all perfect saints, but we're also not all horrible people that are out, to, you know, um, out to um, scrounge on benefits. And um, so it's, I think it's really important and I think editors need to listen to why disabled people are so annoyed with that narrative of inspiration porn because actually um, something my mum says now my mum is non-disabled uh, but she's obviously my mum so she's the parent carer of a disabled person the whole reasoning behind inspiration porn is to try and make non-disabled people get up their backside and do something because it's basically saying, look, this person with a disability has done it, so why can't you? Yeah. My mum said it. She says, the minute I hear those that line even being used, I turn off the TV. And that's a non-disabled person saying it, but a non-disabled person who is a carer of um, a disabled person. I can tell editors now, any editor that is listening to this podcast, the majority of disabled people, the minute they hear that, narrative of look what this disabled person's doing 
they are going to turn off. It annoys me something rotten. Like I remember the first year I reported at Wimbledon, it was the year that um, Gordon Reed won uh, the first ever singles championship that was played in wheelchair men's singles. Now, winning Wimbledon is an achievement whether you are in a wheelchair or not. Uh, the line I wrote was Gordon Reed wins first ever Wimbledon men's wheelchair singles title. The line most media outlets went with was after using the use of his legs when he was 12 years old, he wins Wimbledon. Like, no. <laughs> um, we hadn't had a British champion in how many years? That, you know, he, he won Wimbledon before Andy Murray did that, yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so, you know, because it technically was in the morning. But um, so I, I think editors don't, not all editors, I'm very lucky that I work for very understanding editors who understand where I come from and they know I'm going to go off on a rant. If, if, they even, if they even suggest it, they know, oh, no, we're not going to bother. I'm probably the worst person and most stubborn person to have in a newsroom because they'll just go, don't bother asking that because Gemma's just going to say no and she's going to give us like a ableism chat and an inspiration porn chat, which is probably what I'm doing <laughs> right now. Um, but um, what editors don't realise is actually that inspiration porn line is actually a form of ableism. Mm. Um, it is actually a form of um, really discrimination against disabled people um and and a lot of people don't realize that um you know you've seen all of these things um there's a lot of good stuff going around in the disabled community at the minute where they're explaining what ableism is i've shared a lot of the stuff um and that can really educate editors and people who work um in newsrooms as well but like i say nothing about us without us like listen to us if you, it, it, it really frustrates me sometimes when I'm at Grand Slam and there are non-disabled reporters there and they ask a completely inappropriate question of a wheelchair using tennis player. There was an incident where I, my microphone nearly went flying halfway across the room because I was so annoyed. I went, because it points out which player it was, so I'm not going to embarrass them. But I can tell you my microphone, I mean, my tennis shots, if I'd had my racket, it would have gone. And I just sat there and thought after it, do you know what? You're sat next to me day in, day out in this press room, in this media room. Why didn't you just come up to and ask me um, before you went into that press conference whether that was an appropriate question to ask of a disabled person? The question asked was, can you walk? Oh, for... <laughs> I won't say who it was, which player they aimed it, but it was, can you walk? And I, I'm quite, I'm quite, I'm powered by coffee and sarcasm. Um, so obviously I have... Um, Great little phrases that I've been writing <laughs> these down. Um, so I can, even though I have hemidystonia, I can walk like two or three steps. It's very wobbly and the chances are I'm going to fall flat on my face if I attempt it. But for the rest of that afternoon, <laughs> I, I had had coffee. The water fridge was literally two steps away from my wheelchair. So I made a point of getting out of my wheelchair and wobbling to the fridge and going, oh my goodness, I'm such a fake disabled reporter because I could walk two <laughs> steps to the fridge. I was, my mum was so embarrassed because she goes in my footwork, she goes, Gemma, 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 Gemma. But I had to make the point because actually there are some questions that get asked of disabled people. And it's even the question that gets asked, um, 
often when you're interviewing disabled athletes and disabled people, reporters, non-disabled reporters will go in and say, um, and I've had it as an athlete being interviewed, but I'll tell you what I always say. So they, they come up to you and they say, so can you tell me what happened? Um, <clears throat> land you in the chair and they do it with that voice and that face and I refuse to answer that because that's basically giving my whole medical history so I went so can it's you tell me none of their business I know and I go so can you tell me what happened when you got the flu because it's literally just the same thing and and people reporters don't realize they're doing it but to make that your first question um into into an interview is wrong like so wrong like <laughs> so wrong on so many levels and I, I will just come back with I'm not frightened to do it as you probably uh, you know I, 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 I'm not frightened to pull people up about it because it needs to be done because that's the only way things are going to get better and that's what I mean by saying we need more representation also behind the camera as well so if producers um, I know a couple of really good disabled producers and the thing is, when you're working with those disabled producers, you're all on the same wavelength of let's not screw this up <laughs> and let's represent it right. And you've kind of then got you in stereo to editors when you go into them and say, no, but we're not doing that. Um, so um, um, it really helps having it behind the camera as well um, in producers, in camera men, women um, and um camera people I'll say to be politically correct but it does help and having that representation there and having people who are I often find a lot of people get the jobs that they want but then in order to stay in them they suppress a lot of their feelings about mm. the way representation should be I don't know whether you find that Lydia um, yeah, they suppress in order to stay in the job because they're worried for job security um, yeah, I mean, Lydia, I could see that you were agreeing with so much of what Gemma said there. Was there anything that you wanted to add um, to that point about what commissioning editors, is there one thing that you think would be really helpful if they took on board? Jupiter, this is, I've just written a piece about this for my newsletter because it's, a conversation that we need to start having I think so the one word that I get a lot is you're so brave you're so brave for doing this and that th that's such a loaded term and sometimes when people say this to me I just sort of want to laugh really because it's so if it, if I wasn't on the autistic spectrum you wouldn't be saying that you wouldn't it would just be sort of like matter of fact. I mean, it's reporters go to places all the time. They go to war zones. People like Marie Colvin are brave. I'm not. I'm just doing the job. Um, so first of all, I think in agreeing with the point, it's we need to actually see just a bit more representation. So I'd rather stories that come out about us and by that I mean all the autistic community um that needs to stop sort of being pigeonholed into really sort of terrible crime stories because sometimes I see it the way I see it is sometimes Asperger's syndrome becomes almost like a byword for being a douche <laughs> when it's not off the back of these stories it's sort of like it's kind of like the buzzword, the buzzword for people going, oh, he's got Asperger's, 
he did that. Um, it's really not like that. Um, and also, please stop calling me brave. It's inspiration porn, as we've just heard about. Um, I'm not brave. You wouldn't be calling me brave if I didn't have a diagnosis and if I wasn't like cheerleading and banging my drum about it. Um, I also think we need to take into consideration um, I'm capable of telling more than just my story. Um, by that I mean I'm a trained reporter. I have my NCTJ. I function just as well as any other reporter who has an NCTJ. Doesn't mean that I will just be telling stories about autism. Doesn't mean that I should just be pigeonholed to writing comment pieces. I literally can do the job just as well as anyone else. Not, I may have a label, but that doesn't just confine me to talking about autism and it gets really boring. Sometimes editors have the best of intentions by saying, oh, okay, they, they might be a bit more clued up in representation and they'll say, oh, okay, here's something that's happened about ASD. We need an autistic person to cover that. And they might approach me and say, okay, will you cover that? That's fine, but I think we need to move forward in terms of that thinking because, again, it's sort of like, why are you just asking me to cover that story? I get far less commissions about the stories I would like to tell compared to the work I do around ASD and diversity and diversify the media. It's interesting to me why this is happening. <laughs> I think... I would say Gemma and Lydia, we've run on so much past what I made the note of when we were supposed to stop at because it's been absolutely fascinating uh, listening to your experiences and hearing your excellent advice. Um, it's been so helpful. Um, yeah. We have made a note of those resources. There were lots mentioned in there. So we will provide links to all think, of those. I think if I could leave one piece of advice though, I'd say if you're a disabled pre freelancer, please make sure you're getting paid for it. Uh, the yeah. amount of times I have publications thinking they're doing their um, daily dose of charity by giving a disabled person a piece of work and saying, oh, but we're not going to pay you because you're a contributor. Like, yeah. no, I've been to uni. I've paid for my qualifications. I've got my qualifications. I'm the same as any other reporter in your newsroom. Pay me. I mean, I, you know, I've heard stories of actual disabled reporters or people appearing on, on shows where they've been asked which... Uh, even when they've had a fee, which charity they want their fee paid to. I know who that they've is. Had, I've seen that. I've, I've oh. had, had, um, it's, it, it's, it, we need to move on for that. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. actually, on the access to work thing, if I contribute and don't get paid, I don't get support to do the work that you think uh, that you want me to do for free and actually so then I'm paying to work for you because I still have to employ the support worker I still have to get the assistive tech I still have to do that so I'm paying probably about 500 pound to write something for you for free so you can feel like you've done a charity job yeah yeah and I think and that goes kind of beyond disability as well we talk about this a lot but just not working for free and valuing what you do as a freelance um because you know working for free doesn't pay the bills at the end of the day and, and we're professionals so you know we should be paid um yeah well thank you both so much um it's been really really helpful and there's been some really good advice and um like emma says resources there that we'll get on the podcast um in the meantime if anyone wants to get in touch to suggest any more topics for us to cover 
please email us at freelancingforjournalists at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at freelancing4. Uh, you can also follow us individually. I'm at Emma Journo. And I'm at Lily Cantor. And don't forget to join our Freelancing for Journalists Facebook community where there are lots more tips and advice. Um, and our book is now out officially. Freelancing for Journalists is available through our publisher Routledge or anywhere else you get your books from. There's a big place beginning with A that has it on <laughs> at the moment, we won't say. Uh, my husband ran me up today and said, your book's on that place that Emma just mentioned. Um, and I was like, yeah, of course it is. Where else would it be? <laughs> Random. Um, yeah, also just to mention again that um, we have a coffee page. It's on our pinned tweet. So if you want to buy us a virtual cuppa to say thank you for producing the podcast, then please head over to our coffee page. Uh, yeah, and don't forget to like, rate and subscribe to the podcast if you found it helpful, because then that helps other people find us. And actually, we'd really love it if you found, um, if one of the episodes has uh, kind of resonated with you, if you could leave us a review, that would be fantastic. We also want to say a big thank you to our producer, Richard Wilson, who has been helping us out loads with the editing of the podcast. Yep, and so next time we'll be back uh, for our final episode of this block uh, talking about imposter syndrome. So bye for now. Goodbye.